bench press. I'm Robert Denault, and I'm here, as always, with my colleague, Jess Coleman. Today, we have a very special episode for our listeners. We are going to discuss an aspect of the law. And we always talk about aspects of the law and how they affect our politics and our civic society. But today, we are going to talk about a very specific provision of the law that doesn't get discussed very often. But it's been in the news recently. And the law we are talking about is a provision of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The 14th Amendment is actually one of the more frequently and commonly discussed amendments. We all know the First Amendment, protecting free speech and religious exercise. And we know the Second Amendment, which contains protections for the private ownership of firearms. Less of us know the Third through Thirteenth Amendments, but some of them we know. Probably the third most famous amendment in U.S. history is the 14th Amendment. It was enacted after the United States' only civil war. The 14th Amendment contains five sections. First section makes any person born in the United States a citizen of the United States and grants due process protections to everyone, all citizens. And that first section contains a famous clause called the Equal Protection Clause. Most Americans have heard of that before. It's been used in support of cases that found schools needed to desegregate, ruling that equal rights for women were constitutionally mandated, and most recently, in our memory, marriage equality and other civil rights finding and lawsuits. This section of the 14th Amendment has been a force of nature in American law and culture since its enactment. And then there's the second section, which is a bit technical, but it basically restructures the way our congressional representatives are apportioned by, for the first time, including Black citizens in population counts. While it doesn't get as much attention, this section is really the heart of the 14th Amendment. After all, what's the point of having the right to vote if the Constitution dilutes that vote down to nothing? And you may remember a lesser discussed section, Section 4, from our podcast last spring about the debt ceiling. Section 4 stipulates that valid public debts of the United States authorized by law cannot be questioned and prohibits the United States from assuming or paying payments arising from the Civil War and slavery. Obviously, wars are expensive, and the Civil War created a bit of financial and political uncertainty for the future of the United States. This section was just meant to provide at least some clarity moving forward. So you may have noticed we skipped a section there, Section 3. And that's what's been in the news a bit lately. And that's because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment holds that no person can be a senator, representative in Congress, elector, a vice president, or president or hold any office under the United States or any state who previously served as an officer, a member of Congress, or any state legislature, and subsequently engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. Like the other sections of the 14th Amendment, Section 3 is active law, is in force, and it is applicable today. It hasn't been used much, but in the wake of the country's first insurrection since the Civil War, and the political nature of that insurrection. Suddenly, Americans around the country are wondering whether those who participated or gave comfort to insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are actually legally and constitutionally barred from holding office under Section 3. The question seems pretty simple, but it's getting framed a lot of different ways. Some are asking if the law should be used against Trump. Others are asking if the political chaos it could cause is worth it. Others are trying to preview the legal arguments and predict how the Supreme Court would ultimately rule. But most people we're talking to have a much more basic question. 
What the heck is this Section 3 thing after all? And how realistic is it that it actually bars Trump from office? We've been searching for somebody to help sort through these messy questions. And that's why we are delighted and excited today to speak to Matt Ford, a staff writer for the New Republic covering law and the courts. And Matt's been following this issue closely and in a piece just last week, implored the American public to start thinking about the possibility that Trump, the leading GOP contender for next fall's presidential election, might not end up on the ballot at all. With that very intriguing concept in mind, we welcome Matt to the Mench Press. Matt, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this fascinating topic, Section 3. So rare to get the opportunity to talk about it. And you start your piece by talking about some of the recent lawsuits that are being filed to disqualify Donald Trump from holding office, and they're citing the third section of the 14th Amendment. What have you been reading about, and, and which ones have stood out to you? So I, I think the most interesting one so far is the Colorado one. And what stands out to that one, about that one to me, is that it is sort of not contested. It's, it, you know, it's adversarial. There's, there's the Colorado Secretary of State's office is, is clearly on the other side. But you get almost a sense of relief when you read the statement by, by Jenna Griswold, the, the Colorado Secretary of State, in its filing, because now this will be tested before a court. Because as we've heard from, from her, from other secretaries of state across the country, this is, this is something they've been wondering about. This is something that, that is going to be a live issue. Um, and now it's, it's, as always, something for, for the federal courts to resolve, so to speak, to sort of uh, carve out the breadth of this. We had some earlier litigation about Section 3 and the, the midterms uh, related to Madison Cawthorn that didn't really go anywhere. Um, but we haven't had sort of a firm judgment on what the provisions in Section 3 mean, uh, what they would look like if they were enforced, who's responsible for enforcing them. Uh, and so I think that there is the sense of relief was almost palpable that, that finally we'll have a court figure this out. Yeah. I, so you mentioned the Cawthorn case. And I think uh, initially when this started to sort of bubble up again as 2024 came onto the horizon, a lot of people who maybe weren't diving super deep into the weeds on Section 3 were referencing back to this case, which to just educate our listeners who might not be familiar, Madison Cawthorn was then running in a primary, I believe, in North Carolina for re-election. Uh, some constituent, I think, brought a case trying to disqualify him under Section 3 uh, for his efforts to sort of uh, reject certified electoral votes and suspend the certification of the 2020 election for Joseph Biden. Um, mm. The district court initially dismissed that or denied that effort and based that ruling, it seems like, in part on like uh, a read that some statutes passed post-Civil War really mooted Section 3. And then I think the Fourth Circuit reversed that, but like Cawthorn might have lost his primary already. And, and so actually the case was no longer really live. And so it was moved anyway. Is that your understanding? I don't know how familiar you are with that case, but. I'm, I'm, I, you know, that case was a couple of years ago. So I, it's, it's, you know, as all cases that are a couple of years old are, it's, it's not, you know, super fresh, but I, I think you got the basic gist of it right. Um, the thing that stuck out to me about that case was not only the, the weakness in terms of the timing, the fact that he was summarily uh, lost his primary election and thus became moot. Um, but there was the, the, the 
problem with that case in terms of figuring out what Section 3 means for us present day Americans was that the overt act that he was alleged to have committed in furtherance of an insurrection or rebellion was not that strong. Uh, and I think that sort of distinguishes it from this one. I think, uh, if I rem- remember correctly, uh, the overt act that he was alleged to, to commit was purely his voting against the electoral votes uh, when they were being counted. His, he was voting in favor of a challenge to them on January 6th and 7th. Um, and I, I think I, I wrote something at the time to the effect of that that is not strong enough. Uh, I, I thought because in order to reach the bar of disqualification for insurrection or rebellion, not that that's a high bar. I mean, if you rebel against government, you meet it, but it's a bar that, that I don't think you can meet with an otherwise lawful act. Uh, and so that, right. that case I thought was interesting in terms of breaking new ground and certainly opening the door to this, but, uh, it was not necessarily one that I, I thought was on the strongest footing. I think that the Trump case, on the other hand, and I'm just going to refer mainly to Trump, although there's a lot of other people caught up in the right. subpoenas and indictments for this stuff. Um, but for, for our purposes, I'm, I'm just going to focus on Trump unless you, you, know, you want to have more specific discussions about anybody. But the Trump one is, is more interesting because he appears to have committed far more overt acts, uh, both to organize the mob, to summon them, to, to direct them, uh, and then by his inaction. Um, the fact that he didn't do anything really to uh, dispel them from the Capitol building uh, until they were already basically on their way out. Um, that to me is a much more overt act. And I think that one is what sets this one apart. In, in addition to the fact that they didn't really get to the meat and potatoes of, of the right. Section 3 question. So I want to back up for a second and I want to ask the question that I think everyone has, which is, okay, the provision's there, but like, what the hell do we do about it? You mentioned these lawsuits. And frankly, you know, I'm one of these nerdy people who follows this stuff on Twitter. Even I didn't even know about some of these lawsuits that are happening. And it seems like we're about to enter this phase where there are going to be like a million lawsuits, a million different election officials diff- making different determinations in all different jurisdictions. How, how, do we, how should we take in this information? How do we think about this? Can you like explain just how this is going to play out in terms of who's going to be making these decisions? Uh, how are these things even getting into the courts? What kinds of groups are able to challenge this? Like, how how should we even begin to absorb everything that's going to start coming at us? Well, I, I'm going to start by saying that I'm going to speak in very general terms here, um, because each state, for better or worse, runs its elections differently. And so there are different rules, regulations, qualifications for for challenging uh, ballot access for candidates. Um, it's it's not a process that I can say is the same in California as it is in Texas as it is in New York. Um, and even if it were, I, I'm not familiar enough with all 50 states law. So when I speak of this, I'm speaking generally. So if you're listening to this and you want to go challenge Trump's qualifications, keep, keep in mind that local laws and rules may apply. Um, but I will say that in, in the general practice is, is that this is done by lawsuits from voters. Um, which means, you know, viewers like you, uh, people who, who have a stake uh, constitutionally in how elections are run uh, and ensuring that only qualified candidates are on the ballot. And that's, that's, that's not unusual. There was, a, there was a case in, I mean, it's unusual in the sense that we rarely get candidates run for office who aren't qualified for them because people don't typically run for office if they're not qualified for it. Um, but in, in general terms, what happens is that it can take one of two ways. Either one, the state official will deny it. 
uh, ballot access, and the candidate will sue to challenge that decision. Or two, the state official won't deny it, and a citizen or voting rights group acting on behalf of citizens will file a lawsuit to challenge it. So it all comes down to, for practical terms, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you're a state election official, because if you do disqualify him, Trump's going to sue, probably. That hasn't happened yet, but I imagine, given his litigious nature, he would sue. Uh, or if you don't do it, uh, voting rights groups will sue. Uh, so it, it's 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 going to reach the co- the courts through one of those two ways. And from there, I mean, like I think the most important thing you said is that this is going to happen all over the country, right? This is not the United Kingdom. This is not France, where we have one central organization that's going to make this call in terms of the the election commissioners. There's there's not a national election commission. Uh, this is a call that's going to be made by 50 state secretaries of state or state boards of election, like they have in Wisconsin, for example. Uh, they're going to be the ones on the ground making this call one way or another and thus inviting the legal challenges. Now, we know some have ruled it out. We know that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has said that he thinks Section 3 can't be invoked for various reasons. Uh, so there are some people we know who won't. And of course, there are people who support Trump who won't do it. I mean, I don't think we have to worry about uh, the Florida Secretary of State saying Trump can't run for office. Uh, Ron DeSantis would would lock them in a dungeon if, if he did that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess my first question there, though, would be obviously those those cases as they move through the court are going to be postured very differently. Um, for example, if you have a state official who has the authority to make this call and actually the duty under the law to make this call, um, then it's Trump's lawsuit to try to get that reversed. But whereas you get these either in individual voters or voting groups bringing the lawsuits, and I think we saw this in one case in Florida already, there's a standing problem. And it's, it's do they really have a different harm from anybody in the United States who could make the exact same claim? What do you think about that? I mean, is standing going to be a problem for any person who tries to strong arm the election officials here? I, I think it would be a problem for individual cases, and this is where I come back to my my prefatory statement, where I said that I I don't know what every state's laws may be. Some states' laws may have higher burdens for voters to challenge this, uh, and some states' laws might have lower ones. So I I can't speak as to whether or not Colorado or Minnesota, the two lawsuits that I'm aware of where this is already a live issue, um, whether those states will individually individually succeed. But I can say that in, in general terms. I find it hard to believe that all, none of these lawsuits will succeed um, because we do occasionally have challenges to ballot access. And uh, I, I think that, that that would be a natural product of it. It also, the, the other aspect here is that it only takes one. Um, it only takes one official uh, or one lawsuit to cross that the, the procedural thresholds uh, and get to the merits for this to become a real life thing. Because as soon as um, well, I, I actually, I, I should, I should revise that slide. I say it takes two, um, because you will have, if you have a circuit split on this, say the right. fifth circuit court of appeals, which is tends to be more conservative, uh, says, no, no, no. The insert, the, the amnesty act of 1879. I don't know if that's the year, but thereabouts for the reconstruction. 1872. Uh, 1872. Close. Yeah. Uh, I, I went over as price is right style. Uh, if, if, you know, they might look at that law and say that, that wiped it away for all coming time. 
which is what the district court judge said in the Ma- in the Madison Gawthorn case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there go, therefore, ergo, Trump, Trump can run for president. And then a judge in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals might say, oh, no, Trump tried to overthrow the republic. This is what the founders feared. And this is what the Reconstruction amendments are designed to stop. And ergo, Trump can't run for president. If you have two different federal courts, and this is, this is you know, Fed Courts 101, if you have two different Fed courts saying two different things, obviously the big guys have to figure it out. Uh, and I, I honestly have no idea what the justices will do. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really hard predictor. I mean, you know, hard not to take the originalist theory into account here that is so popular with a majority of the Supreme Court these days. I mean, I think a lot of we, recently there was a, a, a popular scholarly article written by um, originalist academics who were advancing mm-hmm. a theory that this is really not a close call. And right. that it's pretty obvious that Section 3 is active. It is enforceable. It's actually self-enforcing, self-executing, mm-hmm. and that election officials have an obligation to enforce it and disqualify Trump from the ballot. Um, did you review that article? What did you make of it? Do you think it might sway some of these judges and maybe some justices into believing that originalism mandates this outcome. It's really not political at all. I, I, f- I found it highly persuasive. Um, and I say that somebody, I, you know, I'm not an originalist judge. I'm not sitting there practicing original on a daily basis. So I can't, there, there are limits to my ability to get inside the mindset of how they might receive it. But I, I think that as somebody who um, does read varying degrees of, of originalist scholarship from time to time, I found it to be very strong. Um, and strong, not only aspect of, you know, how they looked at what counted as insurrection or rebellion, but some of the other aspects as well. I, uh, the, the most important one, I think that they, that, uh, Michael Stokes Paulson and, and William Bowd, um, was that it was self-executing. Um, because one argument that has been raised, uh, against it is that the, the ena- enabling clause at the end of, uh, the 14th amendment, uh, in section five. Uh, so, which says that Congress shall enact this by appropriate legislation. Um, there have been some arguments that unless Congress disqualifies people, you know, then then nothing can happen. Um, but they pointed out, you know, that this is not how the rest of the amendment works. This is, you know, we don't have, there's there's no enabling for the due process clause or the privileges and immunities clause or what's left of the privileges and immunities clause. Um there's there's no enabling for any of those, and so I, I think that is that is where it was really strong. This is not just the argument because anybody can argue that that Trump committed an act of insurrection or rebellion. Anybody can argue, oh, he's he's a threat to democracy. Um, but the part I thought that they did was going through so comprehensively, point by point, and saying this is how this was intended to work, and this is why state officials can do this right away, and this is why they should do this right away. Um, and I think it's persuasive not only because of you know, the scholarship involved, it's, it's, if I recall, it's like 120 pages. It's it's not something that they just threw together in a weekend. They, they, they put some effort to it. Um, But it's also persuasive because of who they are. Um, You know, if, if readers are familiar, listeners aren't familiar, uh, William Bowd is one of the, you know, most highly regarded intellectual uh, or original scholars of this generation um, of sort of the new wave. And Michael Stokes Paulson's conservative credentials, are unimpeachable. Um, this this is a guy who uh, 
I, I don't want to paraphrase his language, but you should see what he used to write about Roe v. Wade. Um, <laughs> these are tried and true conservative. Originals. Yeah, these, no, no, nobody can say these people are, are rhinos no. or cons- fake conservatives or, or whatever. Yeah. These, these people yeah. were not part of the hashtag resistance. Right. Uh, these people are true believers in, right. in originalism and in a more conservative approach to uh, American constitutional law. And I, I think that makes it that much stronger because that creates an intellectual space for a Brett Kavanaugh, a, a Amy Coney Barrett, a John Roberts to say, okay, I'm, I'm not getting out over my skis here. Right. Um, I'm not going into the wilderness. This is something that people of, that I respect uh, as scholars and as, you know, I'm, I'm sure they've run into these people at cocktail parties. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> That that these are people I respect, and that they are making sorry. It's not just it's not just Larry Tribe throwing it off on Twitter. Right. Um, these are people in in my circles that are saying this. Um, so I, I think that gives it a little more backbone, and yes. I think that's why you know, as, as I said in my piece, that people need to start taking it seriously. I want to ask about the the, the self reinforcing idea because I think they mentioned this in the article too, and, and a lot's being made of the of their comparing it to like the an age requirement, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I, I'm 29, um, I don't know if I should disclose that, but um, <laughs> if, I, if I try to run for president tomorrow, the New York Board of Elections is going to tell me to take a hike, right? You're, you don't meet the age requirement, you can't get on the ballot. The argument is this is the same sort of thing, that they have the same obligation to keep someone off the ballot. But, you know, that, that, that sounds good and, and that's a, a strong argument in the abstract, but like, it can't be that way, right? Like it's not self-reinforcing because it's, it's, it's not black and white, like an age requirement. It requires some sort of inquiry and some sort of interpretation of what an insurrection or rebellion against the United States is, right? So does that cut into the argument a little bit that like it, it just as a practical matter, can't really be self-reinforcing. It requires the intervention of, of a court or or some agreement amongst officials, right? Right. Uh, I mean, there, there, there are two things. That one, I do think that if if this does fail, I think that's where it will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, standing can be overcome by by legislation, statute. Um, but what is an insurrection? What is a rebellion? That that is an area where somebody can go. Well, you know, what Trump did was bad. You shouldn't send riots at the Capitol. But you know, this isn't this isn't like you know shelling Fort Sumter. This isn't like, you know, the Newberg conspiracy. Uh, this, this is, this is something very serious, but this is not an attempt to overthrow democracy. And I think that's, that's an issue where him being president, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that, but I, I can see those arguments being made. Um, but you know, at the same time, there are, there are, there are times where judgment calls are made. I mean, what is residency? Uh, right. you know, you mentioned age, you mentioned citizenship, but residency, in order to run for president, you have to be a resident of the United States for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know in Congress, some of these people who reside in their district, they quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here for those yes. guys listening along, reside in their district. Um, partly because they have to live in Washington for basic functions of their duties, but partly because they don't necessarily live in the districts that they live in, that they're representing. Right. I mean, you, you, you we had this with, well, I don't want to. Pull an example out of an air second, an intermediate come to mind, but pe- these these things happen. Uh, people look into members of uh, candidates for Congress, and they don't turn out to live where they they're supposed to. And as long as they have a domicile of some sort, they usually slip in under the wire. Um, so I think election officials do have some sort of leeway in conducting this inquiry. 
I think that's why state election officials are so eager for this to get in front of the courts because they want judges to say one way or another, how do we process this claim? What do we do in these circumstances? Because this hasn't been an issue for 150 years and now it suddenly is and we need guidance. In response to this difficulty of defining insurrection or rebellion, totally agree if, if this falls down, that's going to be where it falls down. But that being said, there's other parts of the Constitution that we can look to to understand some of this, right? And impeachment contemplates trials. Treason contemplates trials and findings and evidence. Um, this explicitly didn't. It doesn't require any sort of finding. It doesn't require Congress to vote by two-thirds that an insurrection or rebellion has occurred. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, there's some direction taken in, in the article uh, that the original scholars wrote sort of from that comparison that you look to other places in the Constitution, they willfully ignored those things and didn't create any sort of finding requirement. And the, the Section 3 is sweeping. I mean, the way that it is written is extremely expansive um, and giving aid or comfort to enemies of the constitutional order or the nation is sort of, I mean, it's hard to, to argue that the constitutional order was not being attacked as the transfer of power, which is prescribed in the Constitution, was physically stopped and attacked. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just interesting. And there's, there's other helpful comparisons <clears throat> in that article about, uh, you know, if we, if we set the bar at civil war, right, they could have done that and applied this mm-hmm. only to instances where civil war is declared or something like that. Um, but the reality is the Civil War was precipitated by an unconstitutional event happening, secession. And mm-hmm. uh, they make a very apt comparison, I think, to all the instances where people here were using violence or other illegal means to solicit unconstitutional events. A vice president rejecting wholesale certified legal state electors, uh, people trying to intervene in the certification or tabulation of votes. I mean, these are unlawful acts and they're they're getting in the way of the constitutional order um just sort of a fascinating comparison there that might inform some of this analysis on what exactly constitutes an insurrection or rebellion right and i i think one aspect there that that you you alluded to but i, I think it's worth trying out specifically is is violence um it's not you know you, you can you can lie about the elections all you want you can say that you won by four million votes you can do whatever you want. That's 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 fine. That's illegal. You can't organize mobs to hang the vice president to stop him from uh, certifying your opponent as the elector. Um, I, I think that's that's really where it crosses the line. And the other aspect of that is is that when you know you you bring up the civil war example, I think that is salient mostly because um, they didn't go they didn't hold a lot of trials um, after the civil war. In fact, uh, Lincoln for his own reasons, and then Johnson for his own reasons, uh, parentheses derogatory, uh, didn't really put a high emphasis on punishing the leaders of the Confederacy. Uh, and that was, in fact, one of the impetus uh, behind the amendment itself, um, which is that the radical Republicans were frustrated that these, these you know, seditionists and uh, rebels kept propping back up in the, the machinery of state government in, in the South during Reconstruction. So they had to get them out. Um, they had forfeited their right to participate in the governance of the American state. 
and so I, I think that that points in the direction of you've cast a broad net and then Congress has the power to narrow it in. And since Congress hasn't narrowed it in, everybody's free game. So let's zoom out a little bit. And I want to talk about generally sort of as a, as a, a political matter and as an institutional matter. You write about how you know, the American public should start taking this idea seriously, how we should start taking seriously the idea that Trump might end up not being on the ballot as a result of this. And I want to kind of probe that um, and what you mean by that, because, you know, I've, I've sort of struggled with this idea because on the one hand, you know, institutional confrontation with Trump clearly works. Um, it's one of the only ways we've been able to hold him accountable and have kept his criminality and corruption as a salient issue. And I think it's important to keep doing that. But at the same time, you know, kind of hoping that some originalist scholars are going to convince Brett Kavanaugh and Gorsuch to do the right thing um, doesn't seem to me like a, a good or viable option for confronting Trump and Trumpism. You know, it's, it's, it's something that can be there and can exist alongside a broader political effort, but it seems like something that maybe we shouldn't hold out hope for. So when you say that we should take it seriously, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Is it is it that we should actually take seriously the idea that it could work or that this is a, a part of a broader political effort to take down Trump? I think I think by taking it seriously, and I, I chose that carefully because I didn't want to say this could happen um, because anything could happen. You know, that that doesn't tell the reader anything. Uh, you know, Joe Biden could declare war on Mexico tomorrow. Who knows? Uh, what could happen is, is constitutionally speaking, not interesting because all sorts of stuff can happen. Uh, but taking seriously means taking the possibility that it could happen uh, as more than just sort of random happenstance, that more than just this is, this is not how many angels are dancing on the head of the pin. This is something where rubber is about to meet road in the federal courts and questions will be decided by judges and some sort of outcome will be determined. Uh, we have moved from the realm of theory and abstraction to the realm of practical consequences. Um, you, you know, you mentioned you mentioned persuading Brett Kavanaugh and, and Neil Gorsuch and to 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 sort of reject Trumpism in this regard. I like to point out, and I've I've written about this before, but um, more specifically with this this context, I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, the Supreme Court has never really been thrilled with Trump. Um, they have upheld his policies. They, they upheld the Muslim ban after he went through it a few times. They, they've upheld other things. They've also, they also struck down what he was doing multiple times uh, while he was in office. Um, and, and there's always been sort of an, a sense that Trump is secondary to broader goals of the conservative legal movement, um, which is to say that the conservative legal movement has a very particular view of how election should be run, how the Voting Rights Act should be enforced, um, things of that nature. And so when those two things, you know, when Trump's interests and their interests combine, that's fine. Uh, but as it goes with other things, I, I don't know that that's the case. You know, they did not work to bail him out uh, when he was facing these investigations. They have taken no concrete steps to sort of limit or hinder them. Uh, they did nothing to hinder the January 6th investigations. Um, they have not really used their power to the shadow doc to do anything really in his favor as a personal legal matter. 
Um, and we saw that most recently with, with the Mar-a-Lago raid, where he was challenging aspects of that over the summer, and, and they just sort of brushed it aside. Uh, I don't even think there were written dissents in that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I think that it's right to be, um, to see this as a possibility where the justices might, uh, you know, if there is a strong conservative argument for, for interpreting this meant one way or the other, that's one thing. But I don't think it's necessarily true that they will ride the save Trump. They don't need him anymore. They're on, they got lifetime seats on the court. They don't ever have to talk to him. They don't have to see him again. His, his role in their life is done. Uh, the other aspect of that is that the justices themselves have uh, had a very recent brush with security threats. Um, and I, I think, you know, this is something yeah. that theoretically should not color their thinking, but inevitably will. Um, the justices are not, you know, on Mount Athos in a monastery. The justices live, work. They don't live in, in, in the court building, but they, they work from. Uh, the court building, which is right across from the Capitol. Um, so this, this didn't just happen somewhere distant to them. This happened right next to their, their office. Um, and they have also seen uh, firsthand um, the effects that, that violent uh, encouragement can have when somebody tried to go to the Kavanaugh's house and walked up to a guard and said, hey, uh, is Justice Kavanaugh here? I'd like to assassinate him. Uh, Something that, as you can understand, uh, uh, him being a father of two young girls, he took very, very seriously as a threat to his family. Um, I I mentioned sort of jocularly, but that's something that for the justice is very disturbing. We saw Barrett mention the other day um, that, you know, she went from being a very anonymous person, nobody in America really knew who she was, to suddenly one of the most famous people in the country, and that's jarring. Uh, the justices, uh, I know you guys aren't based here in Washington, D.C., but the justices used to be able to just walk around the city, sort of un- detective. Uh, even most Washington people did not know who they were. Um, and that is gone now. Uh, I, I, I used to, I used to work at the Atlantic and people would see Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She had an apartment at the, the Watergate building. Uh, and then the Atlantic also offices there, we would have interns who would see her in CBS by herself, just, just getting snacks or whatever. Um, that that's gone. So the justices are not I, I wouldn't count out the possibility that they're much more attuned to the dangers of political violence than people think. Right. Um, and that they are much less uh, thrilled with Trump as a political entity than people think. Um, so I, I wouldn't go into this the way I would go into a Voting Rights Act case where I say, oh, you know, John Roberts is, has some funny ideas about the Voting Rights Act or the way I would go into this on a, uh, a case about the independent state legislature theory where the justice have sort of hinted some support for it. If the justices' only way to save Trump is to save Trump, uh, they, I, I don't know that they'll take that step. And I think this is a much more open question than it seems. Yeah, you, you make a good case. And, and I, I think it's, it's also important to note, like, even if it doesn't work, which, you know, personally, I'm not so optimistic that it will work in the end. But even if it doesn't, like, it's important to legitimize the mm-hmm. idea to build precedent, to get it right. actually in courts, to make it real. Because as you say, that's how people take it seriously. You're not going to, people aren't going to take the idea that you can be disqualified for engaging in an insurrection if no one's ever going to attempt to right. deal with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's not the sort of thing that you should hang your hat on, right? But it's certainly something that should be entered into the, to the public sphere to start legitimizing the idea and getting people to take it seriously. 
I, when I say take it seriously, I also don't mean that this is absolutely going to happen, or even that I think it's necessarily likely that it'll happen. There, there's, there, as we've discussed, there are, are rivers to ford and bridges to cross and all sorts of things. Um, but I think it could happen. And I think it is it, 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 the, the, there's a gulf between the likelihood that people think will happen and the likelihood that I think it will happen. And I'm trying to bridge those two. I think that that makes sense. And I think that the way that it's getting framed in the public eye right now is mostly being governed by people who think it's a lot less likely. And I see, you know, a lot of discourse out there about chaos that might ensue. Or uh, I recently took issue with someone who wrote an article, maybe not taking the same perspective as you, but it was sort of, should we use the 14th Amendment against Trump? And it's like, okay, it's not using it against him and playing into this idea that causing chaos as an outcome when chaos is exactly what's precipitating the enforcement of this law. I mean, it's just enforcing the law. It, the the mm-hmm. law exists. It's there. Not enforcing it would be the exception. You know, and it's, yeah. not, it's not special to go and use it against a person. It's just that person may have subjected themselves to the contours of the law that's currently on the books. What do mm-hmm. you make of the people who are sort of putting a non-legal spin on it and just saying the chaos that might unfold makes it not worth any pursuit. Well, you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying that if you're worried about chaos, January 6th already happened. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we have sort of crossed the Rubicon there on, on the likelihood that Trump and his allies might resort to political violence. We, we've reached that point. Um, the threat that they might use further political violence to me as an incentive to to disempower them, not to keep them as part of our, our democratic system. Um, but in terms of, of the other aspect of your question, I, I think that what's essential to, to say is that, like you say, you're just enforcing the law. Um, I didn't wake up one morning and write into the Constitution that people who commit insurrection or rebellion aren't president. Um, some people did 150 years ago. I, I, I didn't wake up that way. It's the same sense that if if Arnold Schwarzenegger ran for president tomorrow uh, and a state, you know, the California election official said, well, you know, Mr. Schwarzenegger, you you can't run for president because you were born in Austria. Uh, They're not using the natural born clause against him. They're simply reading it and saying, well, you you don't meet the threshold. Um, It's unfortunate because maybe you would be good at this. Maybe you wouldn't be. Who knows? Uh, but that's that's the way it's written. If if I, I'm 34 years old, since we're sharing our ages here, um, if I ran for president, uh, you know, oh, actually, I don't think I work for this because I'll be 35 by the time the election is held. Um, <laughs> but let's imagine I ran in 2020. Uh, if if I went to a state board of elections and I said, oh, hey, I'd like to run for president, they would say you can't because you're you're not 35. Um, to a similar point, you know, if if you if you try to overthrow the American constitutional order, uh, and then you say, "Howdy, I I would love to run for office. I would love to be a, you know, member of this system that I have tried to violently suppress." Um, a state election official might say, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your file here. It seems like you tried to overthrow the republic," and and then they would say, "Well, yeah, I guess I guess you know, it was a youthful indiscretion. Were you were you?" <laughs> Were you relieved by Congress? Did they pass some sort of amnesty for you specifically or for the class of individuals of which you were part? And then you say, golly, shucks, you know, they, they just never got around to it. 
then, then <laughs> yeah. the state election official has an obligation to say, well, sorry, you know, call yeah. write your representative and, and get them to work on that for you because you, you don't meet the qualifications for office. Um, I mean, to, to me, the, the, the provision has been underappreciated over the last 150 years because thankfully, up until now, we have not had an organized right. armed attempt to overthrow the federal government. Um, right. But that doesn't make it any less salient. Um, right. The Constitution has the right to defend itself. And, and people right. who are trying to overthrow that order so that a you know, failed real estate developer can, can avoid state prosecution a little longer, um, I'm sorry, but that's, that's, that's just not allowed. At the end of the day, comparing it to Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, these are people who have actually gone and proven that they wouldn't be good for the job. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting added layer there. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for sitting with us and talking through this really interesting issue that I think more and more Americans are going to need to get their arms around over the next few months. Um, but hopefully we can get them started in the right direction. But Matt, thank you so much. And um, people can read your stuff in the New Republic. Is that right? That's, that's correct. Uh, we have a monthly magazine and it's also available at newrepublic.com. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was wonderful. Hey, Jess. Well, we're back after that very enlightening discussion. What did you think? Any big takeaways? Big takeaway for me, I think, was the very surprised with Matt's analysis, which was pretty convincing, honestly, on how the Supreme Court might rule on it. Because, you know, my assumption all along, and I, you know, I still kind of feel this way that that there's there's just no way, mm-hmm. right, that they're going to step in and and literally issue an order that. Trump cannot be on the ballot at all. Um, but a lot of solid points there that, that it is within the realm of possibility, um, that there are at least a lot of external factors that could lead them in that direction. So that, that surprised me. That surprised yeah. me. I hadn't thought of the point about their recent experiences with violence themselves, the fact that the court building is mm-hmm. so close to the Capitol that they essentially must have experienced some parts of January 6th issues. I know the court itself has had a fence up and Justice Roberts has lamented about that decision many times in public. Um, I thought, you know, I think that was a just very helpful way to understand the way these lawsuits are coming about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm less inclined to think that a voter or a voting rights group is going to succeed at strong arming an election official here by a lawsuit saying he's disqualified. Um, personally, I just, I, I think the standing issue is just going to keep coming up that you're not differently situated enough. We've talked about standing before on this podcast, but in order to bring a lawsuit in, in the United States, you need either a cause of action that comes from a statute or you need some special harm that's individualized to you as a person. And that's where this just falls short. There's, you know, any voter saying I'm personally harmed, every other voter's harmed the exact same way. I think that that's a problem. The solution is one election official having the guts and you have more than one swing state with democratic election officials who have shown quite a bit of gumption. And I think Pennsylvania, I think Michigan um, are both states that you may get a secretary of state who says, I'm sorry, I'm going to take the position you do not qualify for the ballot. And the courts can tell me I'm wrong 
and you can get on the ballot. Yeah, or, or just, you know, a, a deep blue state, New York, Washington, right? I mean, Colorado, you know, right. maybe it could be anyone. The, th- the thing is, you know, and, and Matt got into this about how, you know, it just takes it just takes one or it just takes two to set up the circuit split and, and bring it to the, the Supreme Court. But, you know, if it is Washington or New York, a state that Trump's going to lose anyway, that were to mm-hmm. do this, and this goes to the Supreme Court, is there an off-ramp where the justices say, okay, this provision is legitimate, it is real, but it's up to states to determine it, right? Like, is that possible? Like, <laughs> That's a great question, and I, I, I'm not sure. I would guess that if they felt that it clearly didn't apply, they would not be able to take that off-ramp. Sure. But if they felt personally that it did apply, but that the provision doesn't really allow for them to make some sort of concrete determination for everybody, and that it's up to state election officials to come to those decisions based on the vagueness of the provision of the 14th Amendment, maybe, maybe they could. I still think if I'm Trump, and I'm starting to do the legal calculation in my head that Matt was just doing, which is that these justices are not my best friends. They've ruled against me in very key cases that actually hurt me very much personally and politically. They didn't intervene in overturning the 2020 election results. They didn't even accept cases to be heard. They didn't intervene to stop me from getting subpoenaed or investigated when I was the president and advancing similarly crazy claims. They, They have not intervened on January 6th cases to stop them from applying terrorism enhancements and things like that. I may decide if the state that does it is New York, I'm not even going to challenge it. Let them take me off the ballot. I do not want this going all the way up to the Supreme Court so that they make some rule nationwide that I actually am disqualified and that no state can do it. So I think he only sets up the challenge if it's a state where he has something to lose. Yeah, and and that actually also brings up another possibility with that, which is that even if he does appeal it, and it's just like deep blue states, the Supreme Court could just not take the case. They could, which would which be, would be like, the off ramp that you're saying, though. Yeah, just letting letting what stand. I mean, I guess yeah. they could. You know, if there's a if there's a circuit split, though, really hard to say. Like, so they're going to let a circuit split stand? Like they've done it before. I it, it's rarely. It, it, the point here is, I mean, I, I like that we're playing it out because I don't think a lot of people have played it out. Right. But like the, the amount of moving parts here. And then there's just on top of it, the timing of it. Like, right. They're not deciding like major decisions aren't going to come down till like next summer. They could decide before that. But like the proximity, we're, we're getting like pretty close to the election. Well, we are you know? pretty close to the election. My Our guess is that they, they would find a way to decide this on a fast track. They're, they're not going to wait. They have to. Right. What you really need is if not need, because I don't like framing this like it's some sort of only political calculation here. This is the law. So if I'm an election official in a state like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Arizona or Nevada or any swing state that I'm I'm a person that's looking at this statute or this provision of the Constitution and thinking this applies to me and I don't know if I can certify this guy to be on the ballot. I need to make that calculation probably by this January because the primaries are going to start and they will not have the opportunity. There are other Republican candidates, right? So it's not like there's no solution at all, but they need to get the ball rolling on if they have that question, 
those decisions need to start to be made when nominating petitions start going around, really. I mean, he shouldn't even be allowed to circulate nominating petitions and get people to sign on to a campaign and solicit donations for a campaign that can't come to fruition if that's what they think, if that's what they conclude or really sincerely believe. Um, so I think you're I mean, the rubber, as Matt said, is about to hit the road in, in a lot of these places. We're in for a ride for sure on this one. Wake up, America. Well, thanks for listening. And um, we'll be back with more episodes covering similarly crazy topics as this country continues to surprise us every day. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.